Well, good morning, Hope Covenant. Uh, my name is Doug. Let's see. Am I on? Am I on? Am I on? Here we go. I am unmuted. I am on. HS-2. Oh, there we go. Hey, if you're new with us, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. My name's Doug. We're really glad you're here this morning. Um, we're a little on the less attractive side. Again, like as Ryan said, our 40 of our ladies are gone. So, um, <clears throat> but we're glad for all of those of you that are here. I kind of have an imagine. Uh, kind of imagine like some of the dads, like with little kids. Sunday morning, mom's gone. They're like, oh man, it's 9.15. We're going to be late, right? Then 9.30, oh, we're really going to be late. And about now they're like, yeah, we're not coming. Dalton made it. <laughs> Dalton's here, baby. Nicely done. Nicely done. Hey, we're in a season known in the church calendar. Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Um, there's uh, two things I want to mention before I dive into the message. One, uh, we are having a men's breakfast. This is a late addition to the calendar. Saturday, do we got slide? Saturday, March 10th, 9 a.m., right here at Hope. Uh, my pastor from Minnesota is going to be here that weekend. He's going to preach Sunday, but Saturday, Dave Johnson's going to be here for our men's breakfast. He's going to talk about the story in the Bible of David and his son Absalom. And the title of the talk and the discussion afterwards is called A Father Hungry Heart. I'll talk a little bit more about what that's about next week. But guys, put that on your calendar to be here 9 a.m. on Saturday the 10th. Uh, secondly, um, we want to stop here together and just pray for Pastor Paul. He's had a rough week health-wise. And so uh, there's power in us joining our voices and our hearts together. So will you, um, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Paul, for our pastor. Um, thank you that you're with him even right now. Pray for the, the doctors and everybody that's working with him to help him feel uh, back to the top of his game, uh, to recover well and to continue to progress. We ask for your intervention right now that you would comfort Mary and the kids as well and give them encouragement as they navigate this, uh, this latest challenge. Um, thank you for your blessing on Paul and your hand upon their family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, so we are in this season in the church calendar known as Lent. And if you're newer to, new, newer to this kind of thing, uh, 40 days before Easter, uh, we start the season called Lent. And it's a preparation of our hearts and a focusing on what is to come Good Friday is where Jesus was crucified, Easter where Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and we prepare our hearts in this season, and so we're calling our series The Journey to the Cross, and in this series from now until Easter, we're using this text out of Philippians chapter 2, it's our, it's our guide as our journey to the cross uh, during Lent, and what's beautiful is, is there's so many ways uh, in so many different teachings where we can talk about what it looks like to be a Christian or to uh, follow Jesus. Um, and sometimes it gets real theoretical. And, and this passage might even sound that way to begin, but we're going to take it to a story of Jesus eventually, where Jesus spells out exactly what it looks like to live the Christian life. We watch and, and then we love as he loved, and we serve as he served, and Jesus shows us that this is the better way. Um, so on the screen here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, last week what we did is we had a ladder up here and a pile of towels, 
And we contrasted the way of the ladder, where we climb up the ladder, with the way of the towel, which is how we love and serve, as Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet the night before he was betrayed. Philippians 2.5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, and we use the ladder for this illustration, top rung of the ladder, God would be pretty you know, high up the ladder, right? Yeah, yeah. So being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He came down a rung in the ladder, made himself nothing, um, took the very nature of a servant. And then another rung down, being made in human likeness. And it says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further and became obedient to death. Like, he's God. He doesn't have to do this, right? But he becomes obedient even to death out of love for us. And then even lower, death on the cross, the worst kind of death you could possibly die. He descended that ladder. And part of what Isaac's painting here is Jesus helping us get off the ladder and by the way, I like having our Elena is painting as, as well this week. So um, these guys are expressing the message and the talk in ways that will help us to hang on to them. Long after this message fades out of the room, we'll have pieces of art and statements that go up with it. So um, let me continue reading. Verse 9, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is such a great passage here, and it's helping me as I navigate this Lenten season. There's a story that I heard that kind of illustrates how things work in our world. It's similar to kind of climbing the ladder, but it illustrates, and it's kind of easy to pick on politicians, right? So... Um, there was a pastor, and I cannot for the life of me remember who I heard this story from, but uh, he tells a story where he is invited to uh, a dinner, uh, some kind of banquet in Washington, D.C., where there's going to be all these political people. And so there are bureaucrats and congressmen and senators and the president. Like, we're going all the way up the ladder here in the U.S. And so this guy, he shows up in the ballroom, and he observes as the staff, kind of lower on the totem pole, is putting the final touches on the decorations, the place settings. And in a little while, then, then these bureaucrats, the next level up, come in from uh, their Washington bureaucrats, and, and they'd been invited, so they start to arrive, and they start finding their tables, and they start complaining about the table, the temperature of the room, you know, the ambient light, whatever it is. And so they're upset, so they start letting the hotel staff members have it. You know, what are you people thinking? You just march right over there and fix this thing. And a little while later, then the congressmen and women enter the ballroom, and, and they start heading toward their places at the various tables, and some of them aren't real happy with their seats, or they're not happy, he said, with the center places, or the water glasses. Okay, so guess who they start picking on, right? They start talking to the bureaucrats who had gotten this lined up, and they start snapping at them to go fix this stuff. Like, what are you thinking? Go fix this. So then the bureaucrats say, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it right away, Mr. Congressman or Mrs. Congresswoman. So they start responding real quickly to the needs of those who are a little above them, and then they're beating up on the staff that's below them. No surprise when the senators then arrive then they see things that are not to their liking, so they start talking to the congressmen and women, hoping, you know, hop to it, get, get this fixed, get that fixed, oh yeah, we sure will, we'll do it. And then they turn around and start, you know, yelling at the people below them, 
And then eventually, you guessed it, the president and his entourage come. And then the senators, who had been very crabby, you know, about all this stuff up until then, suddenly they're very kind and cordial and pleasant to the president and all his friends. And they welcome him very warmly and assure him, whatever you need, we'll take care of it. Your wish is our command. And when I heard that story, it just was such an incredible window into human nature and maybe our our tendency to kind of lord it over people that we feel superior to, kind of beat up on them just a little bit. And it also shows how we also do the opposite. We show preferential treatment to those that we think are above us on the ladder, the people that we deem as important or powerful, um, which in my mind, ADD, it works really weird, so writing sermons can be odd, but here we'll let you in on me a little bit here. Um, So I start thinking about... Um, I'm going to give you a little trivia for your day here. Uh, it's, it's about chickens, okay? This leads me to chickens, not because the politician thing necessarily, but it leads me to, to chickens. Did you know that, and this was new information to me when I read it a while back, that if, if you were to go to 10 different chicken farms, pick one chicken from each one of these farms, and randomly just select one hen out of the hundreds of chickens at each farm, And then you take those 10 unfamiliar chickens, you put them together in a little pen, and you scatter some feed in there. In a short period of time, uh, if we did that, we would witness this amazing natural phenomenon, this this formation of what's called a dominance hierarchy. Kind of big words, really big for me, that's why I have to have the slide on it. So... um, (laughs) Um, or in other everyday language, we call it a pecking order, right? Have you maybe heard of a pecking order? Yeah, so the pecking order. Now, what I read about the pecking order uh, at that time was that instinctively, the hens would determine amongst themselves who the number one hen would be, and then who the number two, the number three, all the way down to, you know, unlucky number ten, And amongst domesticated hens, what I read was that this pecking order happens in linear hierarchical fashion. Again, this slide helps me with this big words here. Don't worry, I'm not that smart. Um, What this simply means here is that hen number one can peck at and intimidate hen number two and bother it without any kind of payback or retribution from hen number two, right? But then hen number two turns around and pecks at, intimidates hen number three, who will not seek revenge on hen number one or two, but three will turn around and peck at hen number four. And this goes on down the line until hen number 10, who gets like machine gunned by hen nine, right? Doesn't have anybody else to peck. Uh, It's very frustrating to be a hen number 10, isn't it? Like somebody know what I'm talking about? You're like, tell me about it. You know, this is what it's like at work or some other place in your life. And in many parts of the animal kingdom, we find variations of this dominance hierarchy, this pecking order, where each animal has to find its role to play in the pecking order of one kind or another. We human beings have no trouble understanding the dynamics of the the animal kingdom, because in some ways we have similar instincts, don't we? We're pretty familiar with figuring out the process of, of who is where on the pecking order, Uh, We're better at it, actually, than most of us would probably like to admit to. Probably many of us in this place. We could go to a gathering somewhere or a party, uh, some kind of social situation where we spend a couple few hours and then we drive home and if we wanted to and we thought it through, and some of us maybe do, 
we'd go, yep, yep, I know what the hierarchy is. I know the standing of everybody now that was in that room. I know where the pecking order is, and I know where I fit into the pecking order as well. And we're really conditioned at this. Like, we learn to ask the right questions to, de to determine this pecking order business. Like, we look at professions, right? Who's white collar? Who's blue collar? Who, who's management? Who's labor? Uh, who is an employer or a partner? Who's a, a manager or an officer? Like, like, who's the regional sales assistant and who's the uh, national sales director, right? You've got the, you've got the regional manager, um, office fans. We've got the regional manager. We've got the assistant regional manor, manager or the assistant to the regional manager, right? <laughs> Nobody watches Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute. All right. But we do this. We listen for titles. We listen for numbers. We listen for all the tip-offs, and pastors do this, too. I mean, it's, you get a bunch of pastors together, and it is really odd and weird how some of that stuff goes on. But all of this information, it helps us figure out kind of the pecking order, and our culture seems really highly geared to try to make sure people can identify where they fit in the pecking order. Like we do, again, we figure it out by people's positions, by their social status, by the address of their homes, uh, where they vacation helps us do that. And I was going to have us pause a minute, but we're running a little behind here. I was going to ask you to think about, the, you know what, let me do it anyway. Uh, take 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you. What are some ways that we discern or figure out a pecking order in our culture? Just turn to the person next to you. you got 30 seconds. Ready, go. Some of you aren't playing. Come on. Which person's quick? Give the other person a chance. Stop pecking the person next to you. Come on, give them a chance to talk. Now, so you probably have a bunch of really good ideas there. And, and in case we were to think that this whole pecking order phenomenon, well, it's interesting, but it's probably harmless in the final analysis. Let me show you a couple places where I think it gets a little sticky. Most of us, um, whether we're conscious of it or not, we tend to treat people above us in the pecking order once we've established that. We treat them with admiration, with respect, with cordiality, and we tend to treat the people that we see as below us with less sensitivity or respect, sometimes even contempt. You know, none of us probably would have, the, have a difficulty trying to muster the energy to treat well-known people or politicians or celebrities, sports figures. We don't have a hard time treating them courteously or with favoritism, would we, right? It seems to come kind of natural to us. Bill Hybels is a pastor, and he tells this story from years ago that I think illustrates this whole pecking order thing really good, uh, shows where it gets a little sticky. He says, uh, I was in an airport just days after Mark McGuire, this is a baseball player, uh, had won the home run championship many years ago. He said, I stood and watched as people were diving to open doors for this guy. They were offering to carry his bag, to drive him anywhere he wanted to go, to take him out to dinner. And at the same airport, he says, I noticed less than 50 feet away was a third world family, a mom, dad, five or six kids, huddled on the sidewalk, scared and confused. Looked like it was probably the first time they were in our country, and people walked by them, scowling and disdaining the fact that they were taking up space on the sidewalk and breathing our air. 
There was no offer to help them, to invite them to dinner, to carry their bags, to open a door for them. Uh, why? Well, because at the time, Mark McGuire was hen number one. And for you baseball fans, you know, it didn't take long before his record got broken by another guy, and then eventually they all got outed as using illegal steroids, right? Um, but this third world refugee family was a group of hen tens. See, it, it's just human nature. It runs real deep in how our world works. I have a good friend that run a, ran a custodial service, a cleaning service, um, and he would just tell me the way people would treat them, because they were janitors, was disgraceful. Uh, Christians would treat them like this. Churches would treat them really poorly because they were janitors. Now, we could just say, you know, hey, that's just the way the human system works. It's not a whole lot different than the, the animal kingdom with the chickens and the hen pecking, except for the fact <laughs> chickens can attribute their animal behavior or their behaviors to their animal instinct. See, we human beings, we like to attribute our behavior to, you know, old-fashioned, you know, human depravity, to sin, right? Uh, more theologically correct, in my view, to the flesh. And so this morning, I just want to take the rest of our time together and kind of pull back the curtain and ask ourselves, why is it that we show favoritism to those above us on the ladder or in the pecking order? And why do we show impatience and sometimes outright disdain to people that we see below us in the pecking order? I mean, this has been a lot of fun for me this week. <laughs> Not really. Um, just asking myself the question, you know, noticing when I do it and how I've done it and, and then go, oh, God, help me understand why. Why do I do this? And part of it, I think, is that we, we know, we know that people that are above us in the pecking order in our society, they, they possess the ability, uh, we think at least, to, the power even to pull us up a level or two if they desire. Uh, by a snap of the finger or a nod of the head they can give us uh, a raise. They could give us a promotion. They can give us an invitation to a really important event. They could open the door of opportunity for us. So, so people above us, we think, we think they hold our futures in their hands, so it's easy to suck up to them a little bit if you want to get ahead. But let's be really clear. All that preferential treatment that I do and that you do, it's pretty much being fueled by uh, what we might get out of that interaction. When we operate that way, it's really about us. Like, think back to high school. Um, it's a long ways for some of us. Um, but we can, amen. <laughs> we could figure out who would raise our status and our popularity a little bit higher and who couldn't. And then we would often try to make friends accordingly. In college, we would figure out um, who our voca future vocational stock could be raised by and who couldn't help. Uh, this even happened at Bible college where we're all studying to be pastors. How you dress, who you hang around, who you don't hang around. Um, or in the workplace, as we get older, we know who can open those doors, who can't, and then we treat people higher up very well, and we ignore those depending on how much they can or cannot do for me. And into this way that the world seems to work, this pecking order ugliness that runs rampant in the human race and has for all of history, 
this, these words from the Apostle Paul that we just read. He's saying, basically, I think he's saying, hey, time out. We've got to rise up out of the animal kingdom behavior and turn this whole culture around. And Jesus came to show us a different way, to turn the, the way of superiority on its head. See, followers of Jesus are supposed to have nothing to do with this kind of dominance hierarchy, this, this kind of garbage. And so Paul writes the passage we wrote, these amazing verses in verse 4. I love it. Look not to your interests only, but to the interests of others as well. And so I just want to dig into these words and try to understand them a little bit. I mean, first of all, though, because this gets real easy to, to go the wrong way with, um, notice here that Paul is saying, look not to your interests only, okay? Carefully look at these words, because some people, like, think it means something else. He, he's not saying, hey, totally disregard yourself, neglect yourself, just, just exhaust yourself trying to take care of everybody else and, and neglect you. No, no. See, Paul knows that God gave you an identity, a personhood. He wants you to pay appropriate attention to yourself. Like, there is no room, like, this verse is not an excuse for doormat theology that somehow runs rampant through a lot of churches where people act like it's Christ-like to neglect yourself um, or to have no boundaries, to just say yes to everyone and then neglect your family and the people around you. Like, that's doormat theology. And if, if you hang around here long enough, we frequently talk about who God made you to be and why you are valuable and a treasure to care for made in the image of God. The Bible teaches, for instance, we need to show enough concern for ourselves to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, rest, find safety and shelter. And beyond that, Scripture teaches that you have to show enough self-respect, like you have to respect yourself enough to never allow others to manipulate you, to intimidate you, to violate you or abuse you. We have to have enough self-respect to never let people treat you like that. Um, even further... The Bible teaches that it's true that God made heaven, the God who made heaven loves you. He sent his son Jesus to rescue your life from sin. So you are infinitely valuable. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams by this God who made you and cares for you. And if you've made the decision to be a follower of Jesus, you have born, been born again into a new identity, given a new heart. So your heart is good. So when we act like this dominant stuff, we act out that garbage, this unhealthy, selfish stuff, it's not consistent with who you really are. God calls you his child. He calls you a saint, not a sinner. So what Paul is saying in this passage here is not that we are worthless. He's inviting us into this life that Jesus invites us into, a, a way of living that is counter-cultural. Uh, the way of living as a follower of Jesus it's not about climbing and scrapping our way to the top of the pecking order. Instead, it's about living a life that's concerned with others. So what Paul's concerned about is the age-old problem of looking out for our interests only. Only. He's concerned here about self-centeredness. Now, if we were to ask, if we were to ask a, a psychologist or a um, psychiatrist even... Um, and even therapists. We could, you could come ask Isaac later, see if he agrees with me. I didn't check this yet with him, but um, Isaac's a good therapist. So, um, But if you asked what's the scariest condition to treat, near the top of most of their lists will be narcissism. 
narcissism, this depraved disorder that believes the whole world revolves around me, I am the center of the universe, my needs are more important than yours or anyone else's, and that you exist to serve me. In the context of the chicken kingdom, the narcissist says, I am the number one hen. And some experts believe that our culture is actually the most narcissistic culture in history. Bill Hybels again, he says it this way, a self-absorbed person will destroy a marriage every time. You can't build loving intimacy with a self-absorbed spouse. A self-absorbed person will wreck kids, will wreck relationships with fellow workers, will make a spirit of team impossible, and will wreck small groups in churches. So I think the Bible would warn us, beware of self-obsessed people. They're dangerous, they're destructive, and what Paul's saying in this passage and elsewhere is don't you become one. Don't become a self-centered person. Don't go down the road that produces self-centered narcissists who go out and destroy everything they touch. And, and we recognize there's something, there's a pull in us often to be the center of that stuff sometimes. So we go, how? Like, how can I resist this disease of self-centeredness? And Paul answers that question in this single verse, the next verse, by looking not only to your interests, but to the interests of others as well. And I think Paul here, he sums up in one verse the beauty of what Jesus spent three years trying to convince his 12 disciples of and help them understand. And namely, it's, it's that a life of self-centeredness never leads, never leads to a life of true satisfaction and fullness. And on the other side, an others-oriented life leads to life in all its fullness. Like, we don't see that kind of thinking too much in our world, do we? You know, I think if we believed and lived out that single verse alone, um, look not to your interests only, but to the interests of others as well, if we live that out, I think we would see, like, almost overnight changes in the quality of every relationship in our community, we would see almost overnight changes in work environments, in families, in small groups, in schools. Like the whole atmosphere of wherever we are would change. And Jesus, he went to great lengths to convince the disciples that a me-first mindset had to eventually be exchanged for an others-first mindset. Like the pecking order has got to be taken down once and for all. So we're going to look at an example of that in Mark chapter 10. Um, let me set it up a little bit here. Jesus and his disciples, they'd been out teaching and healing, and word had been spreading about the power and wisdom of this extraordinary teacher named Jesus. And crowds are growing, excitement's building wherever Jesus goes. But before you know it, the 12 disciples are starting to let this, you know, go to their heads. Like if this happened today, I could picture, you know, um, how this would happen is that the, the, after Jesus did this dramatic healing, there'd be people kind of milling around wondering what happened. Um, today, I think the disciples would probably be giving, you know, press interviews, you know, sound bites for the evening news, like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, yeah, we, we had a good day. Uh, it was a team effort. You know, Jesus did his part, you know, but we were right there. You know, it's all about the team, guys. It's all about the team. And then verse 35 of Mark 10 and I'll just sum it up for you while the verse is on the screen. One day, Jesus, two of his disciples, 
James and John, they take Jesus to the side and they basically say, hey, Jesus, put us on either side of your throne when you come into your kingdom. We won't even quibble about who gets the right or left side, just as long as we both get, you know, shotgun in the kingdom. Anybody ever do that in the car? Shotgun, right? They both want the front seats. They're saying three of us on three thrones. You can be in the middle, just one of us on either side. We'll be kings of the world forever. And when they do that, I think Jesus was like probably crushed by their request. Like I can imagine Jesus thinking, huh, oh, all this time I have spent with you guys trying to rid you of this me first mindset. And, and now you're asking me to put you at the top of the pecking order for all of eternity? And then later what happens is the other 10 disciples, they find out about the deal that these two were trying to cut with Jesus. Like things probably almost came to blows, you know. But actually, I think the other 10 disciples were just mad that they hadn't thought of it first, okay? <laughs> Another time, Jesus got so fed up with this me-first mindset, he, he gathered his disciples around him and said, hey, now let's think about this in other terms. You're so determined to get to the top in my coming kingdom. Okay, I'll tell you how to get to the top, how to get the highest honors and the best seats in heaven. Ready? Like, write this down. I can see him saying Two words. Serve others. Serve others. I mean, that's the way to the top in the coming kingdom of God. We would call it here acts of love. Matthew 13, kind of a long passage, but I'm going to read uh, 12 verses here. Matthew 13, Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the teachers of the religious law, the Pharisees, they're official they're the official interpreters of Scripture. So practice and obey whatever they say to you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush you with impossible demands, religious demands, and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with Scripture verses inside, and they wear extra-long tassels on their robes, which is how they show their religious insignificance. Um, verse 6, and, and how they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the most prominent seats in the synagogue. They enjoy the attention they get on the street, and they enjoy being called rabbi. Jesus says, don't let anyone call you rabbi. For you only have one teacher, and you are on all the same, you are on the same level as brothers and sisters. Don't, and don't address anyone here on earth as father. We're not talking about your families here, but we don't have time to go into that teaching. But only God, your father in heaven, that's who your spiritual father is. And don't let anyone call you master, for there is only one master, the Messiah. Then he says this, the greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Just look at those last two verses by themselves. The greatest among you must be a servant, says Jesus. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Or as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, where we've been reading, look not to your interests only. Start looking to the interests of others. And demonstrate it with acts of love. See, Jesus is showing us the way to live in God's story. It's people who begin to give their lives in service to God 
and others and demonstrating that with acts of love. Those are the people that hit the jackpot. Those are the people, and I'm not even sure for sure all of what this means, but according to Jesus, those are the people that are exalted in the world to come. See, we, we understand about how to try to get to the top of a system or climb up the ladder here in our culture, right? Like, think about Wall Street. How does somebody, um, what do they need a lot of in, on Wall Street, you know, to climb to the top? What, what do they need? Money. Yeah, money. Yeah, money. Okay. Um, you guys are bright. Okay. How do you get to the top in Nashville? Yeah, hit, hit music. Yep. Big star. Um, how do you get to the top in Hollywood? Connections, yeah. Yeah, you get a hit movie, you win an award. Um, trickier one here, how do you get to the top in Silicon Valley? <laughs> Plastic surgeon, yeah. <laughs> Study hard, yeah. See, my, my thought is that, you know, you, uh, you invent some techie thing and then you take your company public and then the dot-com crashes and you're done. But um, um, how do you get to the top in Washington, D.C.? Lie, cheat, and steal, that's one thing, yep. <laughs> or kiss up to the right politicians, thank you. You're right, Jim, that's the same thing, kiss up to the right politicians, lie, cheat, steal, yeah. Yep, yep, so, so we understand how this works, we know this stuff, like we figured out how to, what the top looks like in every system that we're in. Like most of us can even think of a way, if we want to, to climb to the top. But what Jesus taught is that in God's economy, this coming world, the way to the very, very top is an others-oriented life. And to do that here, to humbly serve God and others, to grab a hold of what we called last week the ministry of the towel, the fellowship of the towel serving through acts of love. And we put that into practice in our homes, in our jobs, at our schools, in our church, in our neighborhoods. And, and see, God does this interesting thing. As we descend into lower levels of servanthood, um, as we actually show preference to those that some would see as below us in the pecking order, as we put serving towels over our arms and, and get concerned about their interests, the interests of others, the Bible says God raises us up. He raises us up. And part of what that means is that he blesses our lives. He, he fills our hearts he pours his favor on us as we follow the example of Jesus. And the reason it works that way is not because he's just like, here's the system of trophies. No, no, this is how you're wired. People were wired in order to do this and to be filled by doing the very things that God created us to do. See, we're filled with the love of God, and as we give it to others, it just brings us joy. Um, and as we love and serve others, there's this fullness that comes. I mean, God rigged the system this way. Because the path, the true path to fullness is not by climbing a ladder. It's by taking up a servant's towel. It's not by raising ourselves over others. It's by descending. It's loving and serving. And this is the way of the cross. This is the way of Jesus. See, love acts. It's one of the things we say here at Hope, love acts. And that's what God did. He loved us and descended, showed that he's a servant, took our sin upon himself. He paid the price so that we could be set free. 
What's funny is the story I mentioned where James and John asked for, you know, the shotgun thrones. That story actually happened to Jesus and his disciples as they were going to Jerusalem where Jesus would actually get crucified. In fact, we'll read the passage out of Mark 10, verse 32. They were now on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with dread, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him in Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, he told them, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, so he's talking in the third person, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and to the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, beat him with their whips, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now, don't you think you'd be like, whoa, right? Not James and John. Like, they hear all this, and what they do? <laughs> They probably weren't listening because this is when they run over yelling, hey, Jesus, shotgun, right? Put us at the top of the pecking order. Jesus makes this profound statement. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life. To give his life as a ransom for many. Honestly, friends, um, I stink at this stuff. Like, <clears throat> I am definitely in training on learning what this looks like in my own life, in my own heart, in my own walk. So I'm not coming as some expert. I'm just unpacking the stuff that God's been uh, working on me with as we're in this season of Lent. And, and I mean, sometimes even when I do like an act of service, I worry that if somebody sees what I'm doing, that they'll go, well, how come we didn't get somebody else to do that, you know? Does Doug think he has to do it all? I mean, ugh, it's just, it's insidious. Um, Ryan, uh, can you and the worship team come? What I want us to do now is to spend a few minutes pondering this passage with a few questions. Um, and so I'm going to give you a little time. So pull out the insert in your bulletin. Pull it on out. It's folded in half. I'm sure you were taking lots of notes on the blank side. Just kidding. <clears throat> what I'm going to do is read the passage and pause. Mark 10, 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, <clears throat> came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Here's a question that I've been pondering and invite you into. Do I ever find myself wishing God would drop a life of power fortune, or fame into my lap. Just take a moment here. You can write a little bit if you want on that, and then we'll move to the next question. simple question. Let's move to the next part of the passage. He said, you don't know what you're asking. 
Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for, for me to grant. These places belonged to those for whom they have been prepared. Next question, in what ways do I resist following the servant's path to greatness? Just take a minute with that. with ourselves. You're going to need more time like I have needed more time to ponder that. You can take this with you this week. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this next question, in what simple way can I begin to serve someone with an act of love this week? Real, real important, who and what. As we move into worship, some of you might want to spend some more time pondering this, writing this out, listening for what God might be putting on your heart and prompting. Um, if you're like me, sometimes he gives you like that person you really don't want to do it for. <laughs> Trust it. We're going to move into a time during our Lent season here. Every week we plan to end with a time of worship and reflection, uh, sometimes celebration. And as we do that during Lent here, we're offering our communion table and at any time during worship, you can move to the communion table. I'll have the, the stewards, the communion stewards, move to the tables. Um, the way we take communion here is we will take a piece of the bread, which represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us, and we dip it into the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us so that we could be forgiven and free and whole. And this journey to the cross, this journey of Lent, is a time for us to continue to reflect on the way that Jesus has loved and served us. And communion is one way to do that. So we're going to move into this time where we're going to worship through singing. We're going to worship through receiving communion. Um, and you can continue to write, too. Um, but I'm going to invite you to at least start by standing with us as we move into a time of singing and worship.